Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You're listening to the Wijhay Initiative podcast. These podcast episodes are recordings of our past events that we hold in person on a weekly basis. We hope that by listening to the podcast, you'll be inspired to join us at an event. To keep up with our work, please follow us on Instagram. اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وعملا يا رب العالمين أما بعد Is this okay? Can you all to back hear me? You guys noticed that sound was a bit was a little bit of an echo-ish So let's start it inshallah Alright, um, today we're continuing inshallah our reading of this book It's called uh, Treatise for the Seekers of Guidance This is a translation by Imam Zayd Shakir uh, of a book written by an early scholar, a third century scholar, Al Imam Harith Al Muhasibi. The book is called Risalatul Mustarshidin. And it's one of the earliest works we have on Islamic spirituality. And so, inshallah, we're going to start reading a little bit and then we're going to move into our discussion of the foundations of spirituality in Islam being the Kitabullah, the Book of Allah, and the Sunnah of our Prophet That's how the author begins the book. The author begins with the classical khutbah, right? He begins with a khutbah, praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and bearing witness that Muhammad sallallahu is the servant and messenger of God. Um, ultimately, he then says, he describes people that Allah has chosen to be well, who could be considered intelligent. And Allah says, الْأَلْبَاب. They are people of intelligence. The description that Allah gives of them is that these are people who join what Allah has commanded to be joined. Um, and he has some descriptions about them. Then finally, the Imam makes the point right at the beginning that the limits, the limits of Islamic spirituality and what's considered moral and ethical behavior is that which has been demarcated, which has been outlined by the book of Allah and the way of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And finally, what the khulafa, the caliphs, the, the imams after him, have agreed upon. He says that's what we would consider to be the straight path. That's what we consider to be the straight path. Okay. Last week, we spoke a little bit about this idea that the foundation of Islamic spirituality is the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of the Prophet And remember, this is coming from an early, early scholar. Early, early scholar of Islamic spirituality. And then we spoke a little bit about how in the Quran Allah emphasizes purity of the heart. We'll, we'll revisit that inshallah today. But we also spoke about Surah Al-Shams, how Allah takes 11 oaths to ultimately say what? To say that successful is a person who's purified their soul. And in loss, that person is has lost 
in the hereafter who has corrupted their soul. And the point where I was hoping we could take away from that was that the Qur'an speaks very heavily about purifying the heart and spirituality. The reason I say that, look, the reason, let me be very blunt with you. The reason why I keep saying this is, when you start speaking about spirituality, and we start speaking about purifying the heart, sometimes people can be a little averse to that. A little bit. The reason is, when they hear about spirituality, they hear about certain labels. They'll hear about labels. Oh, this group of people, they do this, and they whirl in circles, and they do all that kind of stuff. Look, I'm not here to talk about labels. I don't think we accepted Islam and signed up so that I could have a label. Ultimately, ultimately, and that's why we really want to read this book here. Is this not this is not a book of labels? Label yourself this and call yourself that. This is a question of in order for me to be saved on the day of judgment as I stand before God, what is the purification of heart that I, I need? And it's beautiful that the Imam he begins. From the very beginning saying what? This is not about so-and-so and going over there and doing this. This is about you following what's in the book of Allah and following the way of your Prophet Very clear from the beginning. So last week we spoke about spirituality in the Qur'an. Today I want to speak about spirituality in the hadith of the Prophet in the words of our Prophet. And so that we can understand how he spoke about it. Not how Imam al-Ghazali spoke about it. Not how... You know, Imam Ibn Taymiyyah spoke about it. No, no, no. How did the Prophet ﷺ speak about spirituality? There's a hadith that they want to discuss today, inshallah. This is a very famous hadith. Uh, many of you might have heard the hadith or heard of the hadith. This is known as the hadith of Jibreel. The hadith of Jibreel is narrated in Sahih Muslim. It's narrated, it's one of the few narrations we have um, from Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. He narrates this hadith. It's called the hadith of Jibreel. Why? Because a man came to the Prophet ﷺ in the hadith. It's outlined that a man came to the Prophet ﷺ and he asked him some questions. He looked like a normal human being. After asking the questions, the man leaves. The Prophet ﷺ turns to Umar and says, Oh Umar, do you know who that man was? And Umar says, Allah and his messenger know best. And he said, that was Jibreel. That was the angel Jibreel who had come to you in the form of a human being. Or, in some narrations, He said, that was Jibreel who came to teach you your deen. Your deen. Deenakum. This is very important, guys. The term deen. How many of y'all were here last week? Because we had some conversations last week. Nobody was here? SubhanAllah. We're like on shifts, you know, like, you know, like, that was not my shift last week. My shift was this one. All right. Do y'all remember we had, we had a discussion about spirituality versus religiosity? Spiritual but not religious. Remember we talked a little bit about that? This is important because I want to focus on the word deen here. In the hadith of Jibreel, the Prophet ﷺ says, that Jibreel came and he taught you, O oh companions, through asking questions, he taught you your deen. Which means what? The scholars mention. 
whatever is contained in the hadith, whatever is contained in the hadith, would encompass the deen. Do you understand that? We're, we will be able to find a description, at least at a general level, of the entire deen in this hadith. You won't find the, like the, the specifics and the details, but a universal understanding of what deen is, is found in this hadith. Right? That's why Ibn Daqiq al-Eid, one of the commentators on the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi, he says, he says, you know how, how many of you have heard this before? That in the Qur'an, the Fatiha, the Fatiha, the first chapter, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen, right? The Fatiha, the opening chapter, th that surah, that chapter is a summary of the entire Qur'an. Anyone heard that? It summarizes the themes, the overall message of the entire Qur'an. Ibn Daqiq al-Eid says, this hadith, the hadith of Jibreel, summarizes all the ahadith of the Prophet the Fatiha is Ummul Kitab. This hadith is Ummul Sunnah. Do you understand? It's a foundational that explains in a general sense our entire deen. Okay, let's, let's explore what the hadith says. In this hadith, a man, Umar radiallahu says, Baynama nahnu julusun inda Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam adatayyam. One day we were sitting with the Messenger of God sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We're just sitting with him. And all of a sudden, a man appeared. This man was wearing extremely white clothes. And his hair was really, really like jet black and glistening, like clean. He looked slick. That's like a ghetto tafsir of that hadith, right? So what, what do you think is the issue here? There's an issue because the man shows up, right? What's your first question? You're sitting in the desert. Remember, this is a desert. You're sitting in the desert, and this man shows up, and he looks slick. Yeah, Muhammad, what's the question? How, how is he so clean? How is he so clean? Right? So someone might say, well, maybe he just came from home, right? Maybe he took a bath, put some clean clothes on, just came. The, the, the narrator, Umar ibn Khattab, says, لا يعرفه منا أحد. None of us knew who he was. And it was a small community at that time. Everyone knew everybody. You ever been like, you ever been somewhere where everyone knows everyone, right? Like in high school where everybody knows everybody, right? And then you go to university and it's like, oh, you don't know anybody, right? So he says, لا أحد. Okay, no one knows him. That means what? He's not local. That means where is he coming from? He's a traveler. But, لا يرى عليه أثر السفر. but there's no signs of travel on the man. He's so slick. So everyone's kind of wondering, who's this guy? And then he comes through the gathering. You know, like normally if a stranger shows up, where do they sit? Back, right? Because they're all kind of shy. We don't know anybody here. We can't just be walking to the front. Do you get what I'm saying? While, while the gathering is going on. This man, he cuts through everybody until he came and sat right in front of the Prophet To the point the hadith Umar narrates, He put his knees up against the knees of the Prophet and he placed his hands on his thighs. Whose thighs? Fakhidayhi, <coughs> the pronoun, his thighs, the hiyatan, fakhidayhi. That could be the Prophet's thighs, or it could be his own thighs. Anyways, then he started asking questions. 
the first question he asks, he says, Ya Muhammad. He didn't even say, Ya Rasulullah. He didn't say, Oh, Messenger of Allah. He said, Ya Muhammad, akhbirni anil Islam. Tell me about Islam. What is Islam? The Prophet gives him an answer and he outlines the five pillars. He outlines the five pillars. Right? When we reflect on the five pillars, what, what do the five pillars describe? Do they describe beliefs? Do they describe how you're feeling? Or do they describe actions? You're talking about hajj. You're talking about fasting. You're talking about zakat. You're talking about prayer. You're talking about shahada. To say, ashhadu Allah ilaha What are these? Someone said it over here. These are actions you do. You perform the action of hajj. You perform the action of zakat. You perform the action of prayer. You perform the action of zakat. you giving zakat. You verbally say, La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. Right? Okay. So that's what the Prophet answers in response to the question, What is Islam? You know what this man says to the Prophet? He says, Sadaqta. He said, You spoke the truth. So Umar says, so we were kind of surprised. He's asking him the question as though he doesn't know. And then when the Prophet gives him the answer, the man goes, you got it right. Because the question becomes what then? If you know the answer, why are you asking? Do you get what I'm saying? Normally people ask when they don't know. Now it appears what? The man is taking the test of the Prophet. That's what it looks like. But at the end of the hadith, we find out what? No, this was Jibreel, who was teaching the companions through a Q&A. He was teaching the companions their deen. Okay, so what have we learned so far? One aspect of our deen is what? What's called Islam. Your outer actions. The next question he asks is, Mal Iman? Oh Muhammad, what's this? What's Iman? Because we have Islam. And we described Islam as your physical actions that you perform, right? And then he says, okay, mal iman, what is iman? In response to this question, the Prophet ﷺ describes what? Antupmina billah, that you believe in Allah and his messengers and his angel and his books and the final day. And you believe in the divine decree, right? Destiny. And again, the man says, you spoke the truth. In response to Iman, what types of things is the Prophet ﷺ describing here? If someone says, I believe in Allah, if I say, go do it, what are you going to do? Do you get the question? Are you all hearing me here? Like, if I say, if you say, yeah, I believe in Allah, I say, go do it. You say, well, do what? Like, I believe. There's not, there's not something to go do. Like, I believe. It's a belief system. In response to the question of Iman, the Prophet ﷺ outlines a belief system. Okay, so now we learn that part of your deen are your outward actions, but not to, that's not enough. It's not enough to just outwardly do things. There has to be a it has to be accompanied by what? In an inward belief system. Okay, he then moves to the third question. And this is really the question that we want to think about today. As we speak about spirituality, he asked the Prophet Ihsan? What is Ihsan? Ihsan 
comes from the root letters ha, seen, and noon. And this is where you get the word beautiful, husn. Husn, you understand? Ha, seen, noon. Ihsan then is to make something beautiful or to create excellence in something. Does that make sense? So he asks about this word, what is ihsan? The Prophet ﷺ in response to that says, We could translate this as that you worship Allah as though you see Him. That's one translation we could give here. That would be translating the word ta'buda as worship. We could also translate it as to live a life of servitude to God because that's what ubudiyah is. Ubudiyah is beyond just this idea of when I say worship, what do you guys think of? Because Rabudiyah is a bit beyond sometimes what we understand worship as. If someone says like, teach me worship, what are you probably going to teach them? Yeah, anyone? Yeah. Yeah, you'd, you'd probably teach them how to pray. right? We think of When we think of worship, we think of prayer. What else? Yeah. Reading Quran. Reading Quran. What else? Anything? Making dua. So you start to notice that there's these, these acts that we do, and to us, that's worship. But then, that could lead someone to believe that Islam, or, or, or you know, in the Quran, Allah says, we've not created humans or jinn except that they do what? Ibadah, Someone could think that means, okay, the purpose of my life is for me to pray, do these, do these number of actions, and beyond that, I can do whatever I want. As long as I do these few things, I'm good to do whatever else I want. Does that make sense? But that's not the case. Our deen is not just do a few things and you're good to go. The deen encompasses everything as we're seeing now in this description. And so the, so the, the word ubudiyah could be understood as servitude. That you live your life as a slave of God. And so there's a certain mentality that accompanies what it means to be a Muslim. And so we could pause for a moment here and ask, someone who is a slave and has a master, Allah is our master and we are his slaves, his servants. What does that mean? What's the mentality that a servant or slave has? For example, when a servant or slave wants to do something, how do they, de how do they decide what to do? What do you guys think? Like they think like, what do I want to do today? Wake up in the morning, like what do I, what do I feel like doing today? They follow the instructions. They ask, they ask the master. They say, what do you want me to do? Not what I want to do, right? It's not up to me because my time is not mine, it's yours. You own me, you own my time. So you tell me what to do. Oh, I gotta wake up early in the morning and pray Fajr? Okay, I, I guess that's what I'll do. Oh, I'm not allowed to look at that? Okay, I won't look at that. Oh, at this time of the year, I got I can't eat for 30 days during the day? Okay, fine. That's what I'll do. Oh, I have enough money. Now I have to travel all the way to Saudi? Okay, I guess I got to do that. Do you understand? It doesn't matter what you want when you're a slave. It matters what the master wants. That's a very different idea than to think of worship as, let me just do like 10 things and then I'm good. Suddenly you're approaching it in a very different way. And so imagine you did, you lived your life 
in the servitude of God as though you could see him watching you. And then he goes on to say, because what? Because even though you don't see him and you can't see him, he sees you at all times. To live your life with that awareness. So what is this now describing? It's not describing an action, is it? Ihsan is not describing some action you perform. It's not describing a belief that you hold. What's it describing? Yeah. A methodology. A methodology. Okay. Okay. Yeah. A mindset. A way of thinking about it. A way that you approach it, not just in your mind, but in your heart. And it, so it's now, we're talking about the qualitative experience of your actions, of your beliefs. Do you understand that? That's where there's a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَتَبَ الْإِحْسَانِ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ أَوْ فِي كُلِّ شَيْءٍ Allah has prescribed ihsan, this idea of doing things with excellence, with beauty, in everything. Everything. And the hadith goes on to describe that, you know when you slaughter an animal, there's a way to do it. Do you understand? There's an ethical and moral way to go and do it. You don't just do it haphazardly. And unfortunately, in many parts of the world, Muslims don't adhere to this. And so there's many guidelines. You don't slaughter one animal in front of another animal. You don't do that. Prohibited to do that. And yet you'll find sometimes in the, in the hopes of speeding up the process of slaughtering enough animals that they can make a lot of money, they'll do it. As a matter of fact, the blood should not even come. In. The blood of one animal should not come in front of another animal. We're taught if you're going to slaughter, make sure your knife is sharp. That you're not sitting there and you're just... Hopefully like, like a butter knife or something like, you know, may Allah forgive us. No, I say this because I don't know how many of you have witnessed this act. When done properly, it's a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, when it's commercialized and then there's no care for the ethics, for the humanity, to the point that if you see it done properly, you will see the person slaughtering, calming the animal. I don't know if you ever witnessed this. Because when you, when you take the animal and you, you place it on the floor, I know some of y'all are like, man, what did we sign up for here, right? Like, we didn't know this was going to go in that direction. But let's talk about this. Ihsan. Because the animal's in fear now. Why have you placed it on its side? Someone who, who cares, all right, will calm the animal. Stroke, you know, like, just gently stroke the animal's arms, legs till it's calm. You know, I've seen taking the ear, placing it over their eyes so that they don't even see the knife come out they're slaughtered. That is painless. Do you understand? There's, it's meant to be ihsan. And when you slaughter, then slaughter with ihsan. That might be the last place someone thinks of doing ihsan, right? We think of ihsan where? Like aesthetics. When someone comes to our house and we're going to lay out the food or something, then we got everyone got ihsan then. We don't think about ihsan when you're slaughtering an animal. We don't think about ihsan when you're building a building. Muslims thought about that. That's why when Muslims build stuff, they don't just build it like the University of Waterloo. <laughs> you know where it's just a concrete jungle? It's just like function. There's like no fashion at all. Like what is QNC, yo? What is QNC, bro? You ever seen that? 
It looks like this thing from like Star Trek. This big, huge building. Anyone from Waterloo know what I'm talking about? What is QNC? You know what I mean? Like, what is that? But then on the other hand, if you travel to Turkey, for example, and you go to the messages, can't the message just be like small, simple, no designs? Couldn't it be that? It could be, if you want function. But the Muslims were people of Ihsan. So what did they do? They built it with beauty. The idea that the external is a reflection of your internal. That when you are internally a person of beauty, then every action that will proceed from you will be an action of beauty. Do you understand? And we notice the difference. When you walk in those masjids, how does it make you feel? Subhanallah. There's, there's an impact on your soul. And so Muslims paid attention to these things. Ihsan. So we can talk about Ihsan in that sense. But what about Ihsan in your actions? In your worship? What about Ihsan in your beliefs? Let me give you an example. Let's consider Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, the famous companion of the Prophet Abu Bakr. He's considered, after the Prophet, the greatest human being. After the Prophets. Okay. How many rak'ahs of Fajr did Abu Bakr pray? He was mad pious. Was he praying like 32 rak'ahs of Fajr? How much was he praying, guys? Tell me. Exactly two rak'ahs. How many do you pray? Two. Whose two rak'ahs were better? Abu Bakr's. But you prayed two, he prayed two. Quantitatively, they're the same thing. Why would Abu Bakr's two rak'ahs be greater? The quality of those two rak'ahs. That's why in a day, there's five prayers that are fucked. You can't go beyond that. You can't be like, I'm feeling pious today. We're going to do seven. Like you, there's not an option. There's five prayers. You have to submit and say, Oh Allah, you want me to pray five prayers? I'll pray five fard prayers. Ihsan always allows you for room for growth. Always allows you room for growth. How? Because you could always pray your prayer better. Could you not? With less distraction. You know, like, here, here's a challenge, man. And may Allah give us all tawfiq to have even one prayer like this before we pass away. And if you could have one prayer like this, man, maybe that's the one that'll be a means of salvation for you. Imagine you could pray one prayer where from the moment you started till the moment you finished, you never thought about anything but Allah. Y'all think we could get one prayer like that in our lifetime? That would be something to aspire to, you know? Because we all kind of have what? We start strong and then the Wi-Fi dies, right? In prayer. And then we kind of like reconnect it in the second rakah, and then we come back at the end before the Imam says salam. Like, oh, sorry, we're back. Y'all get what I'm saying? Or we're praying and then we're thinking about right after this, I got to go do this. And then my exam's tomorrow. And I got to get to work and I got to go do this. We're thinking about everything. You know, like subhanAllah. It's pretty crazy, right? Yeah. There's always room for improvement. Okay, let's say, let's say subhanAllah, I don't know how, but you are able to, mashallah, pray every one of your five prayers in such a way that from the moment you start till the moment you're done, all you think about is Allah. 
Is there room for growth? What's the room for growth? The sunnahs. Now let's see if you can pray your sunnahs in that way. Oh man. I barely got four accounts done with like that. Gotta do two more? Okay, let's say you got the sunnahs down, then what? Then you got your optional prayers, your nafil, nawafil. And each one of those nawafil, how much are you praying? Then the taraweeh. And that's his prayer, guy. That's his prayer. We can start talking about dua. Can we make dua where we're only thinking about Allah? Can we fast in such a way that we never break the rulings of fasting? Where we never, not even just the rulings, but like we never swear or curse or backbite while we're fasting? Can we treat everybody with ihsan? Do you see how much room there is to grow? There's no maxing out ihsan. Do you get what I'm saying? There's always room for growth with your ihsan. There's always a, a more sincere prayer you could pray. There's always more humility that you could inculcate in yourself. There's always more care and kindness you could show to others. There's always more humility you could develop within yourself. There's always a deeper sense of tawakkul. You can create ihsan not just in your actions, but what about ihsan in your beliefs? What does that mean? What would it mean to create excellence and beauty in your beliefs? Could you show, could you show beautiful patience? Fasabrun jamil, Allah says. Allah doesn't say fasabrun kathir. He doesn't say like Yaqub showed a lot of patience. We say that sometimes, right? Oh, that person's got a lot of patience. Right? He says, no, Yaqub showed beautiful patience. SubhanAllah. What does that mean? What does that mean? Have you ever seen someone show patience, but their face betrayed them? Their facial expression betrayed them? So you could tell they were kind of cheese. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's okay. And you could tell like, no, it's not. <laughs> they're not saying anything. So in that sense, yeah, they're showing patience. They're probably doing the best they can, right? But their facial expression is giving up, giving it up, right? You can tell. Beautiful patience is what? Absolutely no desire for revenge. Absolutely no desire to attack someone. You're just patient. And you're pleased with God. Oh Allah, whatever you decreed for me, I'm okay with it. That's hard. That's hard. Imagine if someone loses a child. Yaqub lost a child. What does patience look like? In our times, what would patience look like? We might think what? For the first one day, two days, what would it be? The first stage of grief. Denial. Just deny that this happened, that this person's gone. Right? Not accepting that. We're from Allah and Allah takes back whomsoever He wants. And so you understand how Ihsan could be brought about in everything. In the state of your heart. Let me ask you a question, guys. What's the state of your heart? What's the state of your heart? Do you, do you, do you even know how to start thinking about that? kind of hard like what, what do you mean like if I ask you if I ask you tell me about your financial situation oh well, you can start telling me a lot right you can start describing a lot think a lot about your financial condition to me your financial status to me. you could you'd be like yo I just checked like five minutes ago let me let you know right if I ask you about your physical health many of you could give me a lot of information 
here's my BMI, here are my you know, sugar levels, here's my weight, here's my measurements, here's this, here's that, here's how much I can bench, here's this. We have a lot that we can talk about when it comes to what? Our physical health. But if I ask you, the, the state of your heart, tell me about the state of your heart. It's not even like a thing. Like, is there an app for that? You know what I mean? Like, someone's probably going to ask me, is there an app for that? And let me give you an example, because you might be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, the question makes no sense, so I don't have an answer for you, because I don't even know what you're asking. Let me give you an example. From the lives of the companions. And the point of this example is to highlight what? The companions were constantly worried about the state of their heart. Constantly. There's a famous hadith about a companion by the name of Hanbala, radiallahu anhu. Hanbala, he's a companion of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa So he would go to the masjid, he would sit with the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa in the masjid, he would hear the advice of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa So one day he comes out of his house and he's telling everybody he meets, Nafaqa Hanbala. Hanbala is a munafiq, he's a hypocrite. He's calling himself a hypocrite. I mean, that's crazy to begin with. Because none of us do that, right? If anything, when he calls us a hypocrite, we get like mad offended. Excuse me? You talking to me? Like, you know what I mean? Like, how you gonna call me a hypocrite? Hamdala is like, I'm a hypocrite. And you know, like, that's surprising because everyone thinks of Hamdala as a really good person. He meets Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And he tells Abu Bakr the same thing. Oh, Abu Bakr, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite. Hamdala is like, I mean, Abu Bakr radiallahu is like, you're a good person. Why, why would you say that? He explains. And look at this explanation. He says, Oh Abu Bakr, when I am in the masjid with the Prophet وسلم, and I'm listening to him speak about paradise and hell, he's like, my iman, my, my, my st the state of my faith is so high, it's almost like I can see it all in front of me. And I'm feeling so spiritually motivated. For us, that might be like, if you ever had like a Ramadan buzz, you get what I'm talking about? In Ramadan, sometimes you just feel so like pumped. You actually enjoy worship. So, Hamdala is saying, I'm sitting there with the Prophet, and you can imagine, right? Sitting with the Prophet, listening to him in the message of the Prophet. How spiritually motivating that must be. So, he says, I feel so spiritually good at that time. He says, But when I leave the message and I go home and I play with my kids and I interact with my wife, suddenly that spiritual state, boom, it's gone. Like, it really is much lower. So he's like, I'm a hypocrite. When I'm with the Prophet وسلم, I'm a certain person spiritually. And when I'm at home, I'm someone totally different. Do you get what I'm saying? You understand where he's coming from now? The idea that he's a hypocrite? And subhanAllah, look at Abu Bakr He says what? He says, that's a good point. I guess I'm a hypocrite too. SubhanAllah. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, no excuses. No excuses. No like, no, maybe, maybe, you know, we should, it's okay, it's not that bad. You know? No, they were like very concerned. Because it's serious. They understood the seriousness of it. Right? Imagine someone, have you ever seen that happen? Someone has like a health condition. Like they got diabetes. And they're trying to eat some like, spot and what are you trying to tell them you're trying to tell them what don't do it it's not good for you yo and they're like what no it's okay it's not it's not the end of the world I'm like bro like 
you literally have a a condition, right? You're not supposed to be eating that much sugar. But they're like, it's not that serious, right? But a lot of people do what? They recognize that it's serious, so I can't do it. And they'll say no. They'll be like, no, I can't eat this. I got diabetes. No, they don't even say that, right? I got sugar. <laughs> right? You ever heard that one? I got sugar. Yeah, you had sugar, bro. That's what you've done. <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? So they won't eat it. Because they understand, they want it, but they understand what? The seriousness. And many people don't play games with this because they understand it's serious. When it comes to Iman, sometimes we play games. We're like, it's not that serious. It's just one sin. It's just one relationship. You know what I mean? Like we, we play with our Iman. Abu Bakr was alone, no playing in games. Immediately he's like, I guess I'm a hypocrite too. And the two of them went to the Prophet They said, oh Prophet of Allah, we're hypocrites. Prophet said, why, why do you say that? They explained. What did he say to them? He said, no, no, alhamdulillah, that's not how it works. It's natural for your iman when you're in the masjid, when it's the month of Ramadan, when you're gone for Umrah, in these special moments, these spiritually charged environments and times, it's natural for your iman to be super high. And it's natural that when you leave your, you know, these types of environments and other times of the year, it's natural that your iman doesn't feel as strong. That's normal. And if your iman was just like this constant strong level, then even the angels would admire you. Then even the angels would come and shake your hands. Right? So the point I'm making from this is what? Alhamdulillah, what did he notice? He was so aware, self-aware, noticing the change in the state of his heart between being in the masjid and going home. And some of us might also notice that. You might be like, actually, I noticed that too. No, but do we watch out for it? Do you get it? Do we even watch out for it? Like, what am I actually feeling right now? Why is that so important? Because it's at times, if this comes in hadith, Imam Bukhari narrates this in the chapter headings, Tarajimul Abwab, in one of them, Tarajamat al that that shaytan, he mentions that shaytan sits in ambush, waiting for a person to become forgetful of God. And so the moment that the servant forgets about God, that's, at the, t- that's the time when shaytan begins to whisper into the heart of the human being. Because it's the remembrance of God that pushes the devil away. Do you understand? فَإِذَا ذَكَرَ اللَّهَ when the servant of Allah remembers God again, then shaitan moves away. How often outside of the masjids in these pious environments do we end up sinning? Why do we end up sinning? Because Is it because we really want to? Like we intend to sin or something? Sometimes we don't even mean it. Sometimes we slip into sin. Why? If you're not watching. Do you get it? If you're not watching what you are saying and doing and consuming around you. Do you understand? And let me give you an example to make it a bit more tangible. Imagine you woke up one day and you're just feeling really sluggish. How would you make sense of why you're feeling sluggish? Tell me. What would you do? Any ideas? Yeah. Okay, think about what you did before. So is it just, are you just tired? Okay, yeah. 
sleep. Did you get enough sleep? Right. Okay. You think about your sleep schedule. Twenty-six. Yeah, maybe I'm sick. So you, you look at your, your how you're feeling, your symptoms, your fever, right? You're checking your temperature. Yeah. Remember that you are the one responsible for why it's happening. Right. But you're trying to understand what happened to begin with, right? Yeah. I mean, Drank enough water today. Drank enough water, right? You're exam. You're thinking about what did you eat? What kind of foods did I eat? Did I get any? Did I get? Did I get any exercise today? You see, like we start examining a whole bunch of factors that we recognize contribute to what? How we feel. When you're feeling spiritually down, what do you do? What do you start examining, guys? Yeah. Do we do that? What sins are, am I involved in right now? What sins am I involved in that might be actually spiritually deflating me? What about what good am I doing that would be motivating me? Motivating me? Which which places am I going that environments that could motivate me to be better? Am I am I, am I keeping good company? Am I keeping up with my daily actions, good deeds that I'm supposed to be doing? You get what I'm saying? And sometimes, when do you slip on your diet often when you're not paying attention? Do you get what I'm saying? When you forget that you have a diet. You know what I'm saying? Like you just kind of sit down and you just end up eating. You're like, oh, wait, how was, was I supposed to do that? Oh, wait, okay, now I'm going to have to really starve for like a day. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> to try to overcompensate. Spiritually, what happens? We fall in sin when we're not even thinking about our spiritual diet. What am I consuming? What am I doing? But also, what am I consuming? That's something to really think about. In Ramadan, it's not by accident that, subhanAllah, we feel so spiritually good often. Our diet cleans up a lot in Ramadan spiritually. And so, may Allah give us tawfiq to be people who are more cognizant of the state of our hearts. Inshallah, next week we'll continue. Uh, the author begins to speak about our relationship with the Book of Allah. And so we'll talk a little bit about that next week, inshallah. Jazakumullahu khayran. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Jazakumullahu khayran to everyone for coming out. We have desserts for you in the back, inshallah. And uh, Salatul Isha will be in about, I think half an hour, inshallah, 9.15. All right, guys? Take care.